Dear Grace Church, our sermon text for today is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 16, and our theme is repentance and joy related. In today's text, we are shown how two links in the chain of God's grace are connected. The two chain links that we will see in the text are in the sermon title, that is repentance and joy. And in God's wonderful design, these two links are always connected. Though they're distinct, one does not exist without the other. In God's creative genius, for us as his people on this side of eternity, eternity, repentance and joy are conjoined twins. Lord willing, in our next sermon, in the following passage in Second Corinthians, we'll see from chapter 8, In God's wisdom, grace and generosity are two more links in the chain that are also similarly related. As we look at the chain of God's grace and focus in on the links of repentance and joy, please turn your attention with me to God's inspired word, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 2. Hear the word of the living God. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you. For I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. 
But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. The word of the Lord. Join me, please, at the throne of grace as we ask for God's blessing and help as we consider this text today. O Father, we ask that you would do for us what the Lord Jesus did on the day that he rose from the dead and met with his own apostles, when he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Do it for us, we ask, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. As this passage transitions us into a new section of 2 Corinthians, it would, I believe, serve us well to take a step back and quickly see the layout of the entire book. There are really four parts and then a small closing remark in the last chapter. The four parts are chapters 1 and 2, Paul's history with the Corinthian church. Chapters 2 to 7, Paul's defense of his apostleship and gospel. That's known as the Great Digression, where Paul does this big parenthesis for chapters 2 to 7 and defends his apostleship and gospel message. The third section is where we begin today. It's Paul's admonitions to the repentant Corinthians. The vast majority of the church repented when they received Paul's previous severe letter that Titus brought to them. And for these three chapters, 7, 8, and 9, Paul admonishes those repentant Corinthian Christians. But then in chapters 10 to 13, the fourth section, Paul admonishes the unrepentant minority in the church that did not receive his severe letter appropriately and with the grace of the gospel. And then finally, those closing remarks. So our section transitions us from Paul's defense of his apostleship, chapter 2 to 7, to his words to those in the Corinthian church who had repented from questioning Paul's character and apostleship, including his gospel message. And in today's section that begins this portion of the book of 2 Corinthians, there are two parts, verses 2 and 3 and verses 4 to 16. In verses 2 and 3, we see that pursuing the wayward is part of walking with God. And then in verses 4 to 16, we see that true repentance rejoices the souls of the righteous. So pursuing the wayward is part of our walk with God, verse 2 and 3, and true repentance rejoices the souls of the righteous, verses 4 to 16. First, verses 2 and 3, pursuing the wayward is part of walking with God. Look at verse 2 again. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you. Verse 3, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. As far as the structure of today's text goes, I said that uh, verses 2 and 3 is the first point, and I believe that that's the main point of the entire passage, verses 2 to 16. And then our second point, verses 4 to 16, support the command In the first point, the command is in verse 2, make room for us in your hearts. It's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. It is a 
command, make room for us in your hearts. This is similar to what Paul had just said a few verses earlier. In the middle of chapter 6, verse 11, Paul writes, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now, in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. So in chapter 6, in that passage, Paul was calling the whole church to repent for the rebellion against him and, more fundamentally, against his gospel message. The church had been seduced by false apostles and preachers who had come in who had sought to discredit Paul and his ministry. And in our text, starting in verse 2 of chapter 7, Paul begins speaking to those who received his message positively. They responded to his call to repent. One commentator said, while 6.13 was a call to the whole church to repent, chapter 7 verse 2 is aimed at those who have already opened wide their heart. So this command we're going to see as the passage unfolds, is a command to the people who had actually already obeyed it. And then Paul unpacks why he writes this way. So here's the bottom line of our first point, pursuing the wayward as part of walking with God. The bottom line and then some thoughts. You cannot live in repentance and live in sin. Now that's simply stated, but it's radically true. The two are mutually exclusive. So in chapter 7, verse 2, all the way to chapter 9, verse 15, Paul speaks to the majority of the church who, as I mentioned, did repent after receiving Paul's previous, what's known as severe letter. He wrote that between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, along with a tearful letter, but chapters 10, verse 1, all the way to chapter 13, verse 10, lets us know that not everybody responded positively, and that minority that did not repent is who Paul addresses in that portion. So our first point is precisely that. Pursuing the wayward is part of walking with God. Look at verses 2 and 3 to see how Paul pursues these people who have rebelled against him and against his gospel message. Friends, true open-heartedness is not only hard work. It is that. It is gospel work. We all know what it's like, don't we, to have external relationships, even ongoing relationships, with other believers toward whom our internal heart is closed shut. Perhaps it's a defense mechanism that some of us have in order to try to protect ourselves from being hurt. And for whatever reason, we tend to retreat within ourselves and to close our hearts off from others and not let anybody in. And this is especially true when we are uncertain of the other person's love for us. We can tolerate them. We can interact and engage with them. But letting them in, like all the way in to our heart, is something that the gospel must produce. As we see in the Corinthians, Paul loved and pursued them. And he did so with Christ's love, even though their heart had become closed off to him. It's so important in our day when people tend to determine what is true based on how they feel. The Corinthians didn't feel love. They were suspicious of Paul's love for them. 
But that did not mean that they were not loved by him. Consider what Piper wrote on the theme of what he calls emotional blackmail in the church and weigh the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians in light of these thoughts. Piper wrote, not feeling loved and not being loved are not the same. Jesus loved all people well, and many did not like the way he loved them. Piper writes, was David's zeal for the Lord imbalanced because his wife, McCall, despised him for it? Was Job's devotion to the Lord inordinate because his wife urged him to curse God and die? Would Gomer be a reliable witness to Hosea's devotion? You guys know that context. Hosea loved Gomer, but she definitely didn't feel like it. But her feelings were not accurate. Piper goes on, I have seen so much emotional blackmail in my ministry, I am jealous to raise a warning against it. And then he defines, emotional blackmail happens when a person equates his or her emotional pain with another person's failure to love. They are not the same. A person may love well, Piper says, and the beloved still feel hurt and use the hurt to blackmail the lover into admitting guilt he or she does not have. Emotional blackmail, Piper concludes, says, if I feel hurt by you, you are guilty. There's no defense. The hurt person has become God. His emotion has become judge and jury. Truth does not matter. All that matters is the sovereign suffering of the aggrieved. It is above question. This emotional device is a great evil. I have seen it often in my three decades of ministry. And Piper closed, I am eager to defend people who are being wrongly indicted by it. Now think about Paul and the Corinthians. The Corinthians did not feel loved by Paul. Of course they didn't. He wrote them a severe letter. He wrote them a tearful letter. He pointed out their sin. Not to mention the letters of First and Second Corinthians, which also point out their sin. But why did he do it? Why did he pursue them so diligently? Because he did love them. And he loved them not only with his own love, but with Christ's love. They didn't feel that Paul loved them. And therefore, they closed their heart off to him. But their feelings are not God. Paul did love them. And he did them absolutely zero wrong in laboring for the glory of Christ to be uppermost in their hearts and lives. Look at verse 1. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. But guess what? If the Corinthians felt taken advantage of by Paul and told everyone that they felt that way and posted it on their social media and said Paul was loveless and he uh, was was wrong for the way that he treated and interacted with them, and if they canceled him or blocked him on their media mob postings, and if they felt that Paul had corrupted them, and if they felt that Paul had wronged them, their feelings would be wrong. My feelings and your feelings are not God. Do you know what one of the hardest things is for people to do when they feel hurt but are wrong about it? One of the hardest things 
It actually requires a gospel miracle to happen for it to be accomplished. And if it does happen, everyone who experiences it, both the one practicing and receiving what I'm about to say, will together boast before God, that's in the passage, with what Paul calls overflowing joy. Here it is. Make room for us in your heart. Now that means, without demanding an apology from Paul, he wasn't wrong. He did love them. If they didn't feel loved, it was because they misunderstood. And if they were going to hold that over Paul's head until he apologized, they would have been doubly wrong. Demanding an apology from a person that you shut off from your heart, although they did absolutely no wrong, is actually sinful. Or as Piper calls it, emotional blackmail. So to open your heart wide to the person that you feel has hurt you, that's hard. That requires God. Now, if they had sinned, let me be clear. Uh, pardon me. If a person has sinned in the way that they approach another, they absolutely ought to repent. But if they have loved you and not sinned against you, it would be sin for you to demand that they apologize before you open your heart to them. So look at how Paul helps these precious people who wrongly felt hurt by him and whose hearts were tempted to be closed off toward Paul. Paul says in verse 3, I love it, I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and live together. Look how close Paul held them to his heart, even though their hearts were closed off towards him. Paul, in verse 3, fillets his heart wide open to the Corinthians. He lets them all the way in even though they're the ones who, in fact, hurt him. And in this verse, Paul shows them that his love for them is actually rooted deeper than his own love. It's actually based on Christ's love for him. Now, I get that from the order of the words that Paul uses in verse 3 when he says, you are in our hearts to die together and live together. For some reason, the NIV reverses the order of those words, but in the original, it's not live together and die together. It's rather die together and live together. Scott Haifman wrote, Paul's reversal of the normal order of life and death most likely alludes to the death and resurrection of Christ as they are being played out in Paul's own suffering and endurance on behalf of the Corinthians. So I believe that Paul is saying, not only have I not wronged you, even if you have felt that way. And even though you have closed your heart off to me as a result of feeling that way, not only have I not done that, but I am actually loving you, not with my love, but with the love of Christ, whose heart is wide open to me. Evidence nowhere more clearly than in his own death and life, death and resurrection. Therefore, my heart, whether in death or life, is wide open to you. In short, the gospel Paul preached was the basis for how he lived his life and was the foundation from which he loved others. When someone is wayward who claims to belong to the same Jesus to whom you belong, then pursuing them with a wide open heart full of Christ's love is what people who walk with God do. 
That's what Paul was doing. And that's why he was doing it. Has the gospel of Christ so softened your heart? Before we move on from our first point to the second portion of the chapter, this is the command on which the rest of our passage is built. So let's do at least a little bit of application. Has the gospel of Christ so softened your heart? I mean, to where your own godliness is in part measured by your pursuit of those who are straying away from God. First, do you pursue with Christ's love for you other professing Christians who have gone wayward from Christ? Do you know any professing Christian for whom you are concerned because they seem to be slipping away from what Paul calls later in 2 Corinthians simple, pure devotion to Christ? Do you pursue other people out of Loving, genuine, not guilt-based, but grace-fueled love for them. And from another angle, let's say someone pursues you that way. Maybe not because they have a heightened concern about you, but simply because they love you with Christ's love and they want to see you make advance in the gospel. Or perhaps it is because they're concerned about you. But when someone does come after you, they check in on you, they try in whatever way they can, to stimulate or encourage you in Christ's likeness, even if that means at times that they are constrained to draw attention to areas of your life that are of concern to them, that do seem to be out of compliance with the Lordship of Jesus, just like Paul did for the Corinthians. How do you respond? Do you, on the outside, maybe look like you appreciate it, but on the inside, close your heart toward those people? You can answer the question really based on how you feel toward them. When people come after you to encourage you in Christ, to stimulate your love for the Lord Jesus or your obedience, even if that means calling out sin, do you feel loved by them? Or do you feel offended? What's your heart like? What's your inward disposition toward those who, as an evidence of God's immense kindness to you, are pursuing you with Christ's love. Well, while we're on this point, before we segue to the next, let me also say that those whose hearts are open to Christ's love for them will not long remain on the defensive side of this coin, meaning their posture, the more closely they walk with Jesus, the more offensive they will become in pursuing other believers to try to provoke them to greater intimacy with Christ too. I do not want to ignore or miss the obvious fact that though, yes, he is an apostle and yes, he does have a unique calling that none of us bear today. Paul is modeling what it looks like to pattern one's life after the pattern of Christ going after the wayward is part of our godliness. Paul couldn't stand to walk with God while the precious Corinthian believers languished in sin, without at least trying to provoke them and stimulate them to return with him to the cross of Christ, do you suppose that you can walk closely to God while those around you flirt with the world or live in a half-hearted devotion to Jesus or worse, in overt, entrenched sin? Oh, would you pray for them and pursue them and call them back to Christ who died and lived again, verse 3, for us. 
Well, the second part supports, as I mentioned, this command in verse 2 to open wide your heart. And the second part, verses 4 to 16, is really about how true repentance rejoices the souls of the righteous. So in the first part, part of our godliness is pursuing the wayward. And then verse 4 to 16, true repentance in ourselves and others rejoices our soul if we're truly in right relationship with God, walking righteously. There are several parts to this passage. The first is verse 4. First sub point under number 2, verse 4, is that joy flows from a fitting response to the gospel. So when we respond to the gospel rightly, or we see that happen in the lives of others, the inevitable link in the chain connected to repentance is joy. Look at verse 4. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. The phrase in verse 4, great is my confidence in you, is literally translated boldness of speech toward you. And what specifically is this confidence or boldness to which Paul refers? Well, it's none other than his assurance that the repentant Corinthians will continue to respond to the demands of love that accord with the gospel that Paul had preached to them. Paul is boldly, he says that in the verse, confidently, convinced that those in whom the Spirit is at work in the church at Corinth will respond to the demands of the gospel. Here's how verse 4 works. Paul's overflowing with joy. You can see that. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? Huper riseomai. Abound exceedingly. <laughs> it is uh, even in the midst of all the afflictions he experienced. And he says that in the passage, in the midst of abundant affliction. Even in the midst of all the afflictions he experienced in bringing the gospel to the Corinthians and continuing to experience burdens on behalf of the Corinthian believers who closed their heart off to him, verse 4 is telling us that Paul is confident that the Holy Spirit is at work in them, producing repentance that accords with the gospel that Paul proclaims, and such, such that his boasting over them is bold or confident before God. Well, here's an application to this first sub-point. Everyone who has experienced what Paul's talking about in this verse deeply gets what he's saying. You know what he's talking about. Meaning, when other believers who we know and love, with the love of Christ, are moved to gospel repentance by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they reopen their heart to us in mutual love, then not only do they derive comfort and joy, but as the verse says, their renewed obedience to the gospel causes us to derive that comfort and joy as well. That is, look at the verse, Paul's confidence. That is his boast, namely that the source of his comfort and the fountain of his overflowing joy, even in the midst of heartache and affliction, is the Corinthians' obedience. Put another way, Paul is saying that he would gladly go through any hardship necessary for the Corinthians to experience the grace of the all-surpassing God of the universe in their heart. Do you love God's people like that? Have you experienced this joy? Well, this is none other than the heart of our Savior pulsing through the life of the Apostle Paul. 
Paul learned this kind of love, not by himself, but with his Lord, who loved him this very same way. Paul knew the heart-tenderizing pattern of the Redeemer's love. Jesus, we're told in John 13, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The God-centered truth of the gospel of Christ is not only does, does our repentance equal our joy, but our repentance also equals his joy. That's why he said that Jesus said there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous person who need no repentance. It's ultimately why failing to repent is the worst crime in the universe. Not only does it make your life miserable for time and for eternity, but worse, it robs God of his well-deserved glory. Jesus Christ died and rose again, 2 Corinthians 5.15, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who on their behalf died and rose again. Brothers and sisters, let us join in following the pattern of Christ as Paul did, in crossing any obstacle necessary to seek to obtain this overflowing joy in our heart and among those who are in need of restoration and repentance from their waywardness from Christ. If we're able to be utilized by the Lord Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit to turn anyone back to Christ, then our boast will be as large as the heart of Jesus and our joy will be overflowing more fully and more constantly than the cumulative total of the capacity of all the greatest waterfalls in the world. There is nothing greater than being used by God to help others draw near to Him. Upon true gospel repentance, we, like Paul, will be certain that the benefits so, out far, so far outweigh the cost and any heartache and any burden we experience along the way will have been well worth any cost or any investment on our part. All one needs to do to be reoriented to a proper, proper appraisal of the cost-benefit analysis in pursuing wayward people in an effort to bring them to repentance is look at the smile of Jesus when he welcomes into his loving arms those for whom he died. That's what Paul understood, that there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In short, the joy of believers is found in walking with Jesus and rejoicing in what Jesus rejoices in. And he said that the repentance and restoration of his people causes all of heaven to rejoice. So our sub-point was titled, True Joy Follows Flows from a Fitting Response to the Gospel. That's what we want to see in our own heart and in the hearts of those who name the name of Christ. But not only is that the case, under point number two, true repentance rejoices the souls of the righteous because, as we see in verses five to seven, because God himself is our greatest comforter. Verses five to seven, true repentance rejoices the souls of the righteous, sub point two, because God himself is our greatest comforter. What Paul longed for in the Corinthians' hearts was not ultimately their heart open to him. Now, he clearly says that's what he wants in verse 2, but that's not ultimate. He wanted for them to join him in laying their mutual burdens at the feet of Christ. 
and that Jesus would relieve from them their burden. Now, they were both burdened, but no doubt they were burdened for different reasons. The Corinthians, Paul knew, were burdened by their sin. Paul was burdened with sorrow because of their sin. But God was the only one who was sufficient to comfort them both. If you have your Bible, you can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, which reads, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So verse 13, no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother. Now look at our passage, verse 6. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So you can see that those two verses, chapter 2, chapter 7, are a continuation of the very same thought. And everything in between those two verses has been one long parenthesis from Paul defending his apostleship and his gospel message. But the burden of the entire letter, 2 Corinthians, is Paul explaining how eager he was to hear back from Titus with whom Paul had sent this severe letter to Corinth. Paul knew that the people's heart was being closed off to him. He knew that they were being seduced by false teachers and preachers, and people were calling into question Paul's authority and his character and his gospel message. And Paul was eager to find Titus upon his return from Corinth, and we find out that he did eventually find him in Macedonia. But until he found Titus, he was unable to rest until he heard if the Corinthians responded with humility and repentance to God's gospel grace written to them through him, or if they responded with hardness and callousness and a further closing of their heart. And when Paul found Titus in Macedonia, what do you think that meeting was like? More than finding Titus, more than Titus showing up in the house that Paul was at or in the room that Paul was in, In Macedonia, more than Titus coming, God showed up. Verse 6, God who comforts the depressed. God came with Titus. And Paul, verse 7, rejoiced even more. Even though, verse 5, he was afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. How do you rejoice when every single way you look and turn, you see conflict? Even, not only when you look outside, but inside. The answer, because Titus conveyed to the Apostle Paul how the Corinthians responded positively to the Lord and to him as a result of the letter that he sent with Titus to them. The ice-cold hearts toward Paul in the vast majority of the church at Corinth melted When Titus went to them with Paul's severe letter and delivered it to them, I can see it now in my mind's eye. This burdened apostle fighting day after day, night after night to lay his burdens for the Corinthians at the feet of Jesus. I can see him being fatigued throughout most of the days, tired, more tired than he normally would have been because of the loss of sleep tossing and turning in prayer for the precious Corinthians who he loved and had spent 18 months with and who he knew very well. And then one day, this burdened, fatigued apostle looks up and standing in the doorway is none other than Titus in Macedonia who had found him. And Titus in that doorway 
Paul sees with a huge smile of joy on his face. And then Paul begins to hear from Titus's own lips words of deep, heart-transforming, gospel richness invading the lives of the beloved Corinthians for whom Paul was so concerned. Oh, can you imagine the scene? And can you see, as it were, a trillion-pound weight and burden roll off the apostle's shoulders as he, verse 7, leaps for joy and praises, verse 6, the God who comforts the depressed. Titus tells Paul that not only did the Corinthians repent and open their hearts toward Paul, but verse 7, they also comforted Titus. They insisted that Titus hurry back to Paul to convey, quote, their longing, mourning, and zeal for Paul. What a God! What a gospel! What a foretaste of eternal rejoicing that God allowed the Apostle Paul to taste on that day when he learned how the mercy of Jesus had penetrated the hearts of those in the church at Corinth. The great joy of the Apostle was ultimately God himself. And seeing the hand of his God mightily at work, removing sin from the hearts of the Corinthians and removing sorrow over their sin from his heart was a cause of deep joy for the Apostle Paul. Well, as we walk through a situation currently as a local church where sin has ensnared one who is so dear to us, perhaps we're fatigued and we're burdened and we're tossing and turning all night in prayer. Let us not cease to pray as I'm trusting Paul prayed many times after Titus came back to him, whenever he saw someone in sin or any church languishing in lukewarmness or straying away from the grace of the gospel, oh, may we too learn to pray. Do it again, Lord. Do it again, Lord. Bring that joy to us and to those who are straying away from you. Our second sub-point under, under number two is true, to, true joy is derived from God, who is our greatest comforter. But not only is that the case, our big point number two, true repentance rejoices the souls of the righteous for a third reason, verses 8 to 13. That is, because God at work in others brings deep delight to godly people. If you want to measure, test, evaluate, appraise your growth in godliness, just Take a moment to inventory. How much joy does it bring you when you see other people growing in godliness? Well, Lord, help me to say this well and never to get tired of saying it again and again. Here's the principle of verses 8 to 13. Positively and negatively, it can be stated. Positively, a godly person rejoices to see God at work in other people. Negatively, if you're not working with others for their joy, that's what Paul said earlier to the Corinthians, for their joy in Christ, then you're not nearly as godly as you think you might be. Look at verse 8. This lets us know that Paul had a serious inner conflict as a result of wrestling, having written and sent his severe letter. He wrote it with tears. He was waiting for the response in turmoil. We just talked about that. Paul was conflicted about every bit of it. No doubt he gave the matter to the Lord every day. Paul's a praying man, and we don't have to look far to see that. And he even gave this matter to the Lord moment by moment. But the burden was there nonetheless. One thing was certain for Paul. He knew this much for sure. 
his letter would be the cause of great sorrow for the Corinthians. There was no way around that. But his motive was to see God at work in their lives through the gospel. He didn't want to wound them. He actually wanted to heal them. He was trying to cut out the cancer, which may have caused pain in the process. The scalpel of the physician definitely causes pain, but the motive is healing. That again is our current subpoint. God at work in the lives of others brings deep delight to godly people. Do you see Paul's delight in this passage? Verses 8 to 13. As he learned of God's work in the Corinthians through his tough letter to them, it's plain in verse 9. I rejoice. That's the deep delight that I'm referring to. But why did Paul rejoice? Verse 9, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. No godly person gets kicks out of hurting other people. We don't want to see anybody, let alone our brothers and sisters, inflicted with pain. But sometimes hurt is necessary as part of the offering of loving other people well. The goal's not the pain. We do not want to inflict pain. Let me say it again. Godly people do not get pleasure out of that. But we do get joy out of injecting gospel pleasure in the lives of others. And we know that people can't have sin in Jesus at the same time. And oftentimes when godly people cause God's people to experience sorrow, that sorrow is, as Paul calls it, according to the will of God. So sometimes... It is absolutely God's will for us to be sad. Charles Simeon said, It is sometimes urged against faithful ministers that they distress the minds of their auditors by their preaching. And it must be confessed that the accusation is true. I love that. And I feel that actually right now. <laughs> that I'm causing people distress uh, in your mind having to listen to me preach. But Simeon goes on. It must not be concluded from thence that they take pleasure in grieving any, or that they are too harsh in their ministrations. They must declare the mind of God respecting sin and sinners, in order to bring men to repentance. And if they find any persons truly humbled for their sins, they account it to the richest reward of their labors. According to this passage, it is sometimes God's will for us to be sad or to be made sorrowful. Put simply, if you can live in sin and not be miserable, then something is terribly wrong with your heart. And if a godly person approaches you with words of concern, then it should make you sad that you have defected on Christ for something that would have never satisfied you if you had as much of it as is possible. But making you sad in that way does make the messenger sad as well. We don't want to cause people sorrow. But if that sorrow drives you to Christ, verse 9, we will rejoice because of what you gain, verse 9. You don't suffer loss in anything if you turn to Jesus, but you lose everything if you continue to stray from Him. So what follows in this passage is what, is what we find following in this passage is one of the most piercing set of verses in the entire Bible to describe the differences between true and false repentance. Or as Mr. Richard Owen Roberts states in his book, Repentance, many people have a repentance that needs to be repented from. Roberts argues that if you only have exercised worldly repentance, or sorrow according to the world, as this passage puts it, then you actually need to repent from 
your so-called repentance. Meaning, you need to tell God that you're sorry, that you have actually added a sin on top of the other sins by pretending to repent from them. Telling God that you're sorry for false repentance is what true repentance looks like. To use the Old English way of stating verse 10, some have a repentance in need of being repented of. False repentance is summarized in that phrase in verse 10. But the sorrow of the world produces death. In short, false repentance or worldly sorrow is based on being sorry that you got caught. It's as self-absorbed and self-centered as any other sin could possibly be. It may sound spiritual. It may use Bible words. It may even call itself repentance. But according to verse 10, it produces death. But true repentance is not for self's sake. It's ultimately for God's sake. According to verses 10 and 11, godly sorrow leads to true repentance. And according to verse 10, that leads to salvation. Look at this set of verses, verse 10 and 11, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. The eight qualities that are listed of true repentance in this passage are predicated on godly sorrow for our sin. And each of these are worthy of careful, prayerful meditation. But for today, I'll simply ask you, does your repentance for sin manifest the eight traits found in verse 11 that the Corinthians practiced? Number one, earnestness. That literally means a hasty diligence. You are in a hurry to be diligent to repent. Number two, vindication. This is carrying the idea of a verbal defense. You're actually telling God that you agree with God about what he's pointing out in your life that's out of compliance with the lordship of Jesus and the sin for which Jesus died. That's vindication. Number three, indignation. At root, that means we're bothered, indignant about the thing which bothers God. We've taken up God's side. We now possess God's heart and God's viewpoint on the matter. Fear, number four, literally translated would be terror or reverence. And this word is used earlier in this same chapter, verse one, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. It is God who's now squarely in view. And our sin looks like treason because God's brilliance and brightness and holiness and purity is so in view. Number five, longing. That's literally the word for desire. It is a passion for Christ's honor in our life. That's what true repentance looks like. Number six, zeal. This is a eager, what, what would literally be translated rivalry. It, it's a competition. But you're not competing against God. You're actually now competing with Him. Sin is fighting against God. Repenting is fighting with God. And this zeal is it's as if now you're, you're wearing the uniform that God wears. You're on his team and you are competing on his behalf and with him and alongside him and actually by his power for Christ's glory in your heart and in your life. 
Number seven, avenging of wrong. This means that you agree with God that the sin must be fully, satisfactorily, perfectly punished. Either in you or in Jesus at the cross. The only two places that God said sin will be dealt with finally. Therefore, you flee to the one place that God has vindicated in both forgiving you and restoring you to himself. That's how the wrong is avenged. You meet God at the only place where he said that wrong can be made right at the cross of Christ. And then finally, number eight, innocence. This word literally translated would be pure or chaste. It just means that you've left nothing undone. It's not a partial repentance. There's nothing impure remaining. You're innocent. You're pure. You're chaste. The repentance is clean. It's thorough. Paul makes it clear in verse 13 that the Godward, gospel-driven response of true repentance in the Corinthians was a source of deep delight and relief for him. He says in verse 13, for this reason we have been comforted. These eight this eightfold manifestation of true godly sorrow leading to true God-centered repentance and that leading to salvation for the Corinthians brought great comfort, verse 13, to the apostle. Our third sub-point was that God at work in the lives of others brings deep delight to God's people. And the fourth and final sub-point under number two before a closing comment on verse 16 is this, verses 13 to 15. Number four, godly, the godly joy of God's servants brings joy to godly people. So when you see somebody serving Christ and seeking out others and that servant of Christ being made joyful in Jesus as God works in others, you get joy as a third party watching God's servant find joy in the Lord using him for his glory. I get this in verses 13b through 15. It works like this. When Titus brought word back to Paul in Macedonia of the Corinthians' repentance toward God and soft heart toward Paul, it not only relieved Paul's burdens, it did that, but it also brought great joy to Titus. Look at verse 13b. We rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Do you see why Paul's happy in that verse? He's happy that Titus is happy. And Titus is happy because God used Titus to work in the lives of the Corinthians who are happy in God. So when Paul saw God's servant, Titus, get joy out of being used by God in bringing the Corinthians to Jesus, Paul was happy because Titus was getting joy. When Paul sent Titus to Corinthian on assignment to deliver his severe letter, Paul told Titus before he left with the letter that he believed the Corinthians would respond positively. He told Titus that he believed in his heart that they were the genuine article, truly regenerate, true Christians, and that he believed that the Holy Spirit who is at work in them would produce a Godward response deep, deep, deep in their heart. Even so, Paul couldn't guarantee that result. He couldn't micromanage it. Paul's not the Holy Spirit. He could not predict with absolute certainty how they would respond, though he told Titus with great confidence how he thought they would respond. So he waited in prayerful anticipation to hear how it went. And when Titus returned, verse 14, if in anything 
I have boasted to him about you, that's before Titus left, I was not put to shame. That's when Titus got back. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus, before he left, proved to be the truth when he returned. And in the process of delivering Paul's message and bringing the response of the church back to Paul, the heart not only of Paul, but of the messenger, got penetrated with a gospel dart. Verse 15, his affection abounds all the more toward you. That's Titus's affection for the Corinthians as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. When Paul saw how much joy and love Titus experienced in the Lord as a result of seeing what the Holy Spirit did in the hearts of the Corinthians, Paul's joy was elevated all the more. Do you see God? Do you love seeing God use other people? It's okay to have what we may describe as a holy envy or a holy jealousy because you want God to use you too. Okay, praise God. We should all want him to use us. But do you take great joy in watching God use somebody else and them get joy out of being used by God? That's what Paul's talking about. And godly people love that. Parents, let me give you a word. My prayer for us is that our ceiling, as high as we get in Christ-likeness, as much as we grow in grace, as deep as we go in true godliness, our ceiling would be our children's floor. That the lowest they could possibly go is the highest we could possibly attain. And that we would set the bar high for them and that we would get more joy out of seeing them go far beyond where we've been with Christ and that would be a deep blessing to our heart. So our first, fourth sub-point under number two was the godly joy of God's servants brings joy to God's people. When Titus was received with fear and trembling because the hearts of the Corinthians were obedient, Titus's joy and Paul's joy were like twin engines of a rocket propelling them both into the third heaven. Well, the final Part of this passage is verse 16. It's the conclusion. True joy is rooted in gospel-fueled obedience to God. Now, please hear that statement. True joy is rooted in gospel-fueled obedience to God. The conclusion is simple. Verse 16 is short. And it's simple when the gospel takes root in the lives of a local, in the lives of a local church where sin had previously had a foothold and a stronghold. Verse 16, I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. The word translated everything in the New American Standard in verse 16 means all or the whole or every kind. Paul is saying that he rejoices because he now confidently knows that there is no part of the heart's of the repentant Corinthians that is closed off to God, closed off to the gospel, or closed off to him as Christ's apostle and gospel ambassador. The thoroughness of the Corinthians' repentance led to the thoroughness of Paul's rejoicing. True joy is rooted in gospel-fueled obedience to God. Don't you love that in everything Paul had confidence in them before God and that that led Paul to rejoice when we see another brother or sister 
open their heart absolutely wide open to God, to the gospel, and to his servants, then it brings joy to us as well. May we bring that kind of joy to others who seek to provoke our advance in Christlikeness. The application I'll just mention two, which are the points of the sermon that I've just tried to lay out for you. Number one, pursuing the wayward is part of walking with God. Pursuing the wayward is part of walking with God. That's the application. So the local church, not the military, should be the truest ambassadors of the slogan, no man left behind. Brothers and sisters, we are in a war on the side of eternity. Sin, death, and Satan are all coming with a vengeance. And when one of our comrades takes one of the flaming arrows from the enemy, we ought to do everything we can to bring that brother or sister across the finish line with us as we, plural, run the race set before us, plural, looking unto Jesus. Pursuing the wayward is part of walking with God. If you see anybody drifting from Christ, don't wait for somebody to ask you to pursue them. Let the Holy Spirit tap your heart and go. Get them. Encourage them. Try to stimulate others' joy in the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Who are you trying to make happy in Jesus? Well, I hope you've already got a name in your mind, if not two, three, or four. Pray for them and pursue them. Not only the wayward, but in certain times, especially them. And then second and finally, for application, the final point of the sermon, true repentance rejoices the souls of the righteous. When repentance occurs in your own heart, or in the hearts of our fellow brothers or sisters, when it's enumerated by those eight different facets of true repentance that we saw in the passage, godly people experience deep joy in God. When you repent, the links of the chain connect. Repentance and joy are related. And when God uses you to help somebody else repent, the links of the chain are also connected. Repentance and joy are related. So let us root out any sin that's entangling our own heart and let us bring it to the cross of Christ where there's abundant mercy and grace to pardon and heal and forgive us. Restore us rightly back to the Lord and let us care for one another well by lovingly trying to lead our brothers or sisters to the shadow of the very same cross where we found more than enough mercy to cover all of our sin and more than enough to cover theirs as well. The ground's level at the foot of the cross. We all have to come back time and time again. Indeed, we ought to live under its shadow in a mode of repentance, turning from sin, turning from self, turning to Christ. And we ought to seek to do so together. And to the degree that we're used to help others live beneath the shadow of the cross and the fountain of God's love for us and the risen Redeemer, to that degree, our hearts will be filled with true, lasting joy. Well, let some of the select lines from a familiar hymn wash over your soul as the close of this message and, Lord willing, the fresh prayer of our heart. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Oh, that day! When freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Clothed then in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy wondrous grace. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for those who will not today pray for themselves, the impenitent, the hard-hearted, and we ask that you would break through into their lives by the tender work of the Holy Spirit through your word, even utilizing us if you so desire. We pray also for those with false repentance who call something repentance that needs to be repented of. And we ask that the worldly sorrow, sorry they got caught or whatever the case may be, would be turned to true godly sorrow and would bring forth genuine repentance leading to salvation. We pray also for ourselves. Lord, don't let us hide any part of our heart or presume that we can hide any part of our heart from you. And let us open our heart wide to you, to your gospel love, and to our brothers and sisters whom you delight to use to help us live in fellowship with Jesus. We do pray for the fellow brothers and sisters of this congregation that we would cultivate holiness in the fear of the Lord. That we would cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh and spirit and pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord. We pray for our children. Lord, please redeem our children. Cause them to exercise true repentance toward you in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also pray for our kinsmen, our neighbors, fellow Memphians and beyond who are dear to us. Oh God, we ask that you would use us to point them to the fountain of infinite mercy and grace that's found in Christ alone. And we pray ultimately, not for us or for them, but for your glory. You deserve the glory in our life, and Christ deserves the reward of his suffering to have a pure and spotless bride, and we long for his glory, for the full accomplishment of his grace to be realized in our life, and we know that that would bring us deep, lasting joy. So for your glory and our joy we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.